0: The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Tonight, we are continuing in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. We are in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes. This evening, we have been walking carefully through this sometimes confounding, really helpful, really challenging book as a church family. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. I will read, we'll be reading that scripture here in just a second. Now Ecclesiastes is considered one of the books of wisdom literature in our Old Testament and our Hebrew Bible. The wisdom literature are books that are these kind of poetic reflections on the good life. They're concerned with the question of what it means to, to live life Well. Like, What does a, a well-lived life look like? Probably the most famous of all of the, the wisdom literature is the book of Proverbs. You're probably very familiar with the book of Proverbs. If you, if you grew up in church, if, even if you didn't grow up in church, you're probably ve- very familiar with the contents of the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is devoted to the question of wisdom. Now, the Hebrew word for wisdom is most basically, it, it means something like skill or proficiency. Proficiency specifically with an instrument or tool. So when the scriptures talk about wisdom, they're, they're speaking about a kind of proficiency, but not just a proficiency with, with the drums or with the guitar or with a handsaw or with wood or carpentry or whatever, but a, a kind of moral proficiency. And not just a moral proficiency, but a, but a kind of proficiency with life itself, kind of a feel for living life well. Wisdom is more than being nice or being happy. Wisdom is like a, a kind of insight into how the world operates that enables us to live skillfully. It's savvy, it's an understanding of the issues and complexities of life. We studied some select Proverbs last summer, and the definition we used last summer was this. Wisdom is learning to live well in God's good world. Wisdom is learning to live well in God's good world. The scriptures teach that generally speaking, wisdom leads to a kind of happiness and sanity and health and good relationships and overall well-being. A guy named Stuart Weeks says it like this. Wisdom is not a list of answers, but an aptitude for making the right decision, honed perhaps by knowledge and experience, but has much to do with having a character shaped in the right way. So to be a wise person is to be a kind of formed, developed, mature person of character who has a kind of savvy to navigate life. And the wisdom literature is these poetic reflections on what it looks like to live a life well. And then there's Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes' primary contribution to the question of what is the good life is this observation, this kind of thematic emphasis over and over again that life is hevel. Hevel. Hevel is the Hebrew word that's sometimes translated meaningless, sometimes it's translated vanity, but probably the best word, the, probably the best translation is vapor. Life is like vapor. Again and again and again and again the preacher the person who's communicating and trying to care for his readers in Ecclesiastes tells us that all is vapor. Everything is hevel, Life is brief. It's impossible to get a hold of. We can't understand it. Life is unpredictable. Things are foggy. There's an inscrutability to life sometimes. That's the key message of Ecclesiastes. Our lives march onward. There's no managing time. There's no gain at the end of the day. All of our accomplishments and kingdoms will be swept away by the tide of time, Right? And there's a lot about this world that you and I just can't understand. And so we might think, especially after months and months and and week after week after week of studying Ecclesiastes, we might come to the conclusion, maybe wisdom doesn't really even matter at all. Right? If it's all hevel, if everything's vaporous, it's impossible to predict things, everybody's going to die at the end of the day, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. It's like, what use is wisdom? I mean, is there, is there any real advantage to be gained from being wise? Life feels futile and repetitive. Every day is Groundhog Day, chapter one. He essentially says that, right? Life is challenging. The, the race doesn't go to the swift, the battle doesn't go to the strong, what we observed last week, and all of us will eventually die. So, is there any advantage to be gained from wisdom? Wisdom, foolishness, who cares? In fact, I got lunch with someone recently, someone in our body, someone I love dearly. They said, it's really tempting to misread Ecclesiastes in that way, to let it kind of give us permission to just throw our hands up and say nothing matters anyway. But actually, the book is very much still concerned with being wise. So that's our question today. Is wisdom worth it in a hevel life? In a vaporous life, is wisdom worth the pursuit our passage today does read a bit like Proverbs. There's some connected ideas, and there's these aphorisms, some that are less connected. It seems a little bit scattershot, but I think there's, uh, there's two really helpful pieces here for us in this section that's, that's devoted to, to helping us see that wisdom is worth running after. There's one really brilliant but sobering insight, and then one really needed encouragement. All right, so let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 10, starting in verse 1. The preacher says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. W- welcome to what TCGS has been studying since January. <laughs> this is your first Sunday with us. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. All right, so here's our, our, our first, it's brilliant, sobering insight. A little folly outweighs wisdom. A little folly outweighs wisdom. He says, in the same way that dead flies, like think of the association with death, putrefaction, stink, the smell of rot, in the same way that dead flies would spoil a bottom of perfume, so folly has a disproportionately damaging power over wisdom. What we might say is that there's, a, there's an imbalance present between folly and wisdom. A little folly outweighs wisdom. A couple of Christmases ago, here's an example of how a small thing can spoil a big thing. A couple of Christmases ago, my wife and I, gosh, this was, this was more than a couple of Christmases ago. This was probably 10 years ago. Uh, we, we decided we wanted to go get Chinese food with my, wife's, with, with my two brother-in-laws. So we went on the hunt to find a Chinese restaurant located near us. And The only thing that was near us was this Chinese buffet. And uh, we decided to go eat Chinese buffet on Christmas night. We go in, it's surprisingly busy, actually for it to be a Chinese buffet on Christmas night. We go in, we you know, we load up our plates, you get the usual, you get the sesame chicken, you get the General Sou's chicken, you get the deep fried biscuits with the sugar, then you get a little bit of chicken and broccoli. You get back and sit down at the table, and you go sit down to enjoy that chicken and broccoli, and I'm probably halfway through the meal, and then I notice in this piece of broccoli, like a like a black snake coiled and curled around the branch of a tree is a thick, long, black hair. Not just on the broccoli, but like intertwined with it. It was like sewn into the broccoli. I'm, I am not exaggerating even a little bit. And you can imagine what our reaction was. Like if you're, Most people, when they make a discovery like that, they're done eating for the day and typically you know, done eating at that restaurant probably for some time. And that's what we did. We decided... Okay, no, no return visits to this buffet. It was unfortunate. It was plate number one, you know. Uh, so we, we decided, you know, we're going to jet. And when we walked out, we noticed the DHEC grade that we should have noticed when we walked in. It was a C. A good, strong C. Yeah. Look for the DHEC. That's, that means something, I've discovered. All right. But it's amazing how one piece, fragment of hair, has that kind of spoiling effect on our experience and that. I don't think we've been back to a Chinese buffet ever since. No offense if you run one of those and you're here tonight. <laughs> now, now, this tiny item, this hard-to-see item, this one little thing, totally, could totally upend and disrupt an expensive, hours-long process of constructing, making this meal, Right? In the same way a dead fly totally disrupts and upends and spoils this ointment, this expensive, uh, you know, uh, it, it took however long to prepare this, to achieve this kind of perfect scent, it's spoiled by something so tiny as a dead fly. There's an imbalance present here. And the preacher observes in the same way a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. All right. so think about this with me. You could spend decades building a life. You could bust your tail in school, you could bust your tail networking, building relationships, you could work hard to find and marry the guy or gal of your dreams, you could have kids, you could ascend the ladder, you could establish a household, and you could throw all of it away in seconds. How many cautionary tales have, been, have we seen firsthand that this is the case? That a little bit of folly outweighs wisdom wisdom. In honor. How easy is it to tear something that is really good down, to just tear it down willy-nilly with folly, with bad decisions, with bad leadership, but with, with foolish, unleadable people who uh, disrupt and sabotage an organization from the inside. Maybe you've seen someone's immaturity tear a good family apart. Or the example that uh, the author, the preacher of Ecclesiastes has referred to again and again is you could, you could spend your life building a kingdom, building an empire, building an estate, only to give it to your son who could be a fool, who could sell it the, the moment that you pass away. Because a, a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. I think this is kind of like a, a, a Proverbs and a minor key moment for us. The preacher observes that this is just a feature of a fallen, hevel world that this imbalance is present, that wisdom is delicate, that a a life built on wisdom is delicate, and it is easily overturned by folly. I think it's good for us to just kind of sit under that and ingest that, just a second, to to really see and feel sobered by this. At any moment, we could ruin our lives. I mean, I was reflecting on this recently. I mean, you hear, I mean, almost weekly, of some, some pastor in ministry who's totally upended his deal, you know, wherever, and it's like in, in, in the course of seconds, this person made a decision that broke everything. I don't misunderstand. I, I don't think the author, the, the preacher here is saying that there's no such thing as grace or second chances. Or that things can't be rebuilt and renewed once broken. I, don't, don't take that from this passage. But the point that he's making is that folly has a way of spoiling really good stuff. And it doesn't take a lot of folly for the good stuff to be spoiled. Now, what's one place that we see this imbalance really clearly? One small thing that has a tendency to steer the ship in some unhelpful ways. Verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of the fool's mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words. Though no man knows what is to be, And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the ways to the city. So once again, we have some reflections on folly more generally. But he seems to zero in on the the speech of the fool. And seems to zero in after identifying the imbalance of folly and wisdom in order for us to see that our tongues, our tongues, the way that we use our mouths, could be sort of an exhibit A for us, a little bit of folly ruining something good. And I think when we get to James chapter 3, James has this section of Ecclesiastes in mind. James chapter 3, beginning of verse 5. I have this on the screen. James, the brother of Jesus, writing to a group of believers in Jerusalem, says this, the tongue is a small member, it's a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. How great, and, and, he, and he's being ironic there, like the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Like it's capable of doing some really great things. Watch. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is a fire, an un, a world of unrighteousness with its own ecosystems and its own orbit and its own rules of gravity. It's a whole functioning deal. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Hell. Pretty dramatic language. Maybe you've seen this. The way a stray word spoken in the heat of passion can ruin a life or it can spoil a friendship. It can ruin a relationship. It can totally break a child. Like a small spark that sets a forest ablaze. There's an imbalance that's present here. A small bit of our bodies with a disproportionate blast radius, James says. Because a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Let's keep reading in James 3, verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. I take that to mean we once rode T-Rexes. But no human being can tame the tongue. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. We tame dogs and elephants and alligators and dolphins, but we have not yet figured out our mouths. Verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. He says, with the same mouth, we praise God and we eviscerate family members. We represent family members and friends super uncharitably. We speak negatively about them behind their backs. And then notice how he explicitly draws on Genesis 1 here. He says, people that are made in God's image, it is a a tragedy that we speak to them in the ways that we do because they're made in God's image. Verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. It should not be so that the same mouths that praise the Lord curse our brothers. And it's good for us to pause here for a second and think about the imbalance here, the imbalance of the tongue and everything else. These are challenging words for us. How does this passage challenge you? The way that you use your tongues, the way that you use your mouth. Do you have a tendency to fly off at the mouth? Do you have a tendency to speak too much or to speak too quickly? I think if we take James's words seriously, this is not a cute quirk of our personalities. Our tongues are full of deadly poison. Do you speak ill of people? Do you chop people down? Do you represent people uncharitably? Do you speak harshly to your spouse and kids in a way that you'd be mortified if anyone outside of your home saw you speak that way? Do you speak harshly to or about your parents who, doggone it, did their best to raise you, you know? Do you have a general lack of control over your speech? Do you have a sick delight in being in the know and having info to share? Do you like stirring things up? Do you like stretching the truth? Do you manipulate others with your words? This is a folly that outweighs wisdom and and honor. One word can set a forest ablaze. A lack of restraint over our speech can undo the good we devote ourselves to elsewhere. So back to our original question. Is wisdom worth it? Because this seems to complicate that question even more. Is wisdom worth it? If it can be so easily upended, if it can be so easily outweighed by something as small as a slip of the tongue, it's like, again, what is the use of even devoting ourselves to wisdom? Now, from there, the preacher goes on to offer a series of reflections, very Proverbs-esque, kind of rapid-fire set of reflections. Verse 2. Let's read verse 2. A wise wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Uh, The the right hand, I mean, most people are right-handed, and so the right hand is typically associated with a position of honor, associated with usefulness. And so uh, wisdom is to the right. Wisdom is useful. The left hand, uh, a fool's heart is to the left. The left hand, no offense to southpaws, but the, the left side is sort of the place of uselessness. Uh, very much like Proverbs, again, the, the image of wisdom and folly pulling people in opposite directions. It's like orange juice and toothpaste. It's like they, 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 they can't coexist. They each make demands on us, but they aren't compatible. Then verse three, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. He says here that folly makes itself known. It can't not announce itself. A fool will make his foolishness known eventually by some word or action or boneheaded deed. A fool will out himself, and there's no hiding that. We all know people who are foolish because they have shown themselves to be foolish, he says. In verse 4, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Then he speaks about being in the presence of an angry ruler. We could probably extend this to just being in the presence of anyone who has any kind of influence over you who's angry. What is the counsel that he gives? It's to weigh your words and remain calm. I find this to be golden teaching, just generally speaking, calmness goes a long way. And in 2022, calmness, non-anxiousness, is like a superpower. Like the ability to not be stirred up by other people being stirred up is like, it's like a freakish ability these days. The scriptures say that there is a, a kind of, a, a kind of uh, a responsibility that we bear to be a people of calmness, of, of non-anxious presence, immune to the rising temperature that's all around us. Then he gets Ecclesiastes on us again, verse 5. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. The observation he's making here is that there are instances where there are people who are unfit for positions of authority who possess positions of authority. And there's people who should be in positions of authority who don't possess positions of authority. And he's saying this is just, this is a a feature of life in the Hevel world, is that he sees that, that the people who are leading aren't fit to lead and the people who should be leading aren't leading. He makes this observation something that you and I can probably very much relate to. He'll deal again with this in verse 16 when he says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child. When your king is a child, it's a bad thing because the child is not fit for leadership. And while offering these wise aphorisms, he pauses for a second to acknowledge a real feature of the world, bad leaders. And I think once again, our question of whether or not wisdom is worth it surfaces here. In a world where you see people who are unwise and unfit for leadership being put in positions of authority, once again, it makes us wonder, what is even the point? But I think actually what he's saying and calling us to be a people of calmness and sort of non-anxiousness and the presence of bad leadership, I think what we can take away from that is wisdom is all the more necessary because of Hevel. Because of the state of things, because the way sin has disrupted everything, it's like all the more reason that we need to run after wisdom and provide a ballast And the chaos of the modern world. Let's keep reading verse 8. Verse 8 He says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. He says, Life in the land of heaven is treacherous. It's like manual labor, there's always risk involved. Now, my family comes from, my dad's side of the family is from Pennsylvania. Um, My mom's side of the family just emerged from the dirt in Woodruff, South Carolina. I feel certain of. Uh, That's the the people that my mom come from. My great-grandfather, Papa Weathers, he had this house on, um, gosh, I think it's 418, just off 385, down in Woodruff. He was an amazing man. He worked in a factory in the early part of the 20th century to buy a piece of land. He farmed the land. He had cows. He had chickens. And he was a woodworker. And as a kid, I used to love to walk through his shop where he had all of the things that he had built. And it was just always amazing to see the stuff that Papa Weathers made with his own hands, to see the, you know, the amazing intricate stuff that he built. In fact, when Emily and I first got married, we had a piece of furniture that Papa Weathers made for my parents when they got married. There was was always something really neat about that, I thought. Now, something else that always caught my eye about Papa Weathers. So Papa, he, he was incredibly gifted at making this this furniture and and, and these things. Something else that always caught my eye was Papa Weathers also had a nub for a left ring finger. And the result was one time it got a little sloppy around a sander. And this this belt sander found this finger and, you know, reduced it to a nub. The preacher says, in a hevel world, even the most skilled craftsman, Papa Weathers, could fall into a pit or uncover a hidden snake or catch his finger in a sander. That's what he's saying in verses 8 and 9. There's just inherent risk to, to living in the land of heaven. And then he says this. Since there's inherent risk there, there's no need to walk around with blunt instruments. Verse 10. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. A blunt axe requires more effort, like using a drill with low battery. It's just not as effective. Listen. But wisdom helps one succeed. All right? So here's our encouragement. Here's the preacher's answer for us, our question of whether or not wisdom is even worth it at the end of the day. He says, wisdom helps one succeed. There's an advantage to wisdom. Remember, wisdom is kind of like a a proficiency uh, at life. It's learning to live well in God's world. And our needed encouragement is, yes, wisdom helps one succeed. You see what he's saying? He's comparing a life without wisdom to chopping wood with a blunt axe or a dull blade. Wisdom helps us to succeed. It is worth running after even in the land of Hevel. Now, let's remember why he's given us this word. Earlier on in the book, he talks about our tendency to kind of overdo it with wisdom. We have a tendency to think that wisdom can deliver more than it actually can deliver for us. If I'm wise, my life will work out. If I'm, if I'm wise, my life will take the shape that I've always wanted it to take. If I'm, if I'm wise, God's obligated to reward me in ways X, Y, and Z. And we said a few weeks ago that the preacher breaks the news to us that wisdom is no guarantee. At the end of the day, it's all hevel. That life can sometimes be random and there's no knowing what's around the next corner. Sometimes wisdom doesn't deliver. I mean, think about the, the analogy he's given us right here. Even the skilled carpenter catches his finger on a saw every now and again. But he says, having wisdom is like keeping the axe sharp. It is still an advantage. In spite of the unpredictability of life, in spite of the instability of the hevel, it's still an advantage. Yes, wisdom helps us at the end of the day. The heaviness of things doesn't mean we should abandon wisdom's pursuit. We won't regret pursuing wisdom. Our experience of life can be deeply frustrating. It can lack meaning. It can be boring. It can be underwhelming. We can experience suffering that is immense. And we can wonder if anything matters. Pursuing holiness? Being people of integrity when it seems like there's none of those left? Being people who have control over our mouths? Being people who use our money well? People who learn to think and speak and act clearly and well? It's like, what does it all matter? The preacher says, yes, life can be maddening in these ways, but wisdom is good. Run after it. It's still always going to be profitable and rewarding to pursue wisdom. It's not a guarantee of good outcomes. He's burst that bubble for us time and time again. It's not going to make feelings of futility of life disappear. It's it's not going to give us immunity against death. But a well-lived life is worth giving ourselves over to. So when institutions exploit and abuse people, wisdom is still an advantage. When my life doesn't take the shape I plan for it to have, wisdom is still an advantage. When we feel all alone as if the whole world is giving over itself to folly, wisdom is still an advantage. When the fool despises and mistreats us and takes advantage of us, wisdom is still an advantage. And when death surprises us, wisdom is still an advantage. That's what the preacher would have for us tonight. He has this in verse 11. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Just to make sure we we really get it, he says, at the end of the day, we've got to use it. Wisdom's an advantage only in as much as it's used. James is helpful again here in James 1.22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, if we skip down to verse 16, we'll see a couple of further reflections on wisdom, particularly as it relates to good leadership. I love the imagery here in this chapter. Verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. But happier are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. He says, it's bad news for a land when your king is immature and he can't help his appetites when he feasts in the morning. That's the improper time to feast. It's, it's, it's not good for a land when there's bad leadership in place, but it's good for a land when there's a worthwhile leader who's in the position of leadership. Verse 18, through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. I think what he's saying here is that uh, good leadership, uh, you see the imbalance of, of folly present here, and that bad leadership allows leaks to happen that lead the house to ruin. And then in verse 19, it's almost a summary of what he said in the book in regards to feasting. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. His reflections on feasting, you know, he said elsewhere, like, it's good for us to feast and enjoy the bread that the Lord gives us and the drink that the Lord gives us, and money answers everything. What he's saying there is that there's an advantage to having money. It can get you out of pickles on occasion. Then verse 20, I find this very interesting. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. Wisdom in the hevel requires knowing how to deal with bad leaders. And one of the things that he says is don't speak ill of leaders because it could come back to bite you. Does anybody else see the reference that I'm seeing here? The little winged creature that we tend to maybe open our mouths a little too much on? A little birdie that maybe carries your words far and wide and gets you into trouble. Maybe there's Maybe there's wisdom for how we use Twitter present in this passage. What the preacher says to us tonight is that a little folly outweighs wisdom. We should be sobered by this. But we shouldn't be encouraged by the news that wisdom helps one succeed. And friends, listen to this from James chapter 1. This is what James, the brother of Jesus, tells us, tells me, tells you. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. God. Who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But God doesn't just drop wisdom off like Amazon Prime leaving a package at our door. God gives us wisdom itself. He sends his son Jesus who Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.30 is wisdom from God for us. To die for our folly, to die for your folly, so that you could be forgiven of your folly, of your foolishness, so that I could be forgiven of my folly. But also to imbue us with his spirit, his own wisdom, to mold and shape us. We ask God for wisdom and he sends us Jesus And as those who have entrusted our lives to Christ, we give ourselves over to him and say, Jesus, give me your spirit by your word and through your people. Fill me with your spirit and help me to live a life patterned after your life, a life of wisdom that's not ruled by my appetites and by my foolishness, but is ruled by the spirit of wisdom and insight, as Paul calls it in Ephesians 1, 17. And so in spite of the hell, we spend our lives reading Jesus' word as if Jesus is behind it, as if it is living and active and breathing and interacts with us and works in us. We spend our lives abiding in prayer, opening our hearts before God and asking him to pinpoint areas where we need to grow and be shaped into Christ. We spend our lives putting off sin and foolish practices and putting on righteousness and wise practices. And then we spend our lives dropped into a community of believers some who are a few steps behind us, some who are a few steps ahead of us. And God uses them to sharpen us. He uses us to sharpen us in our pursuit of wisdom as a church family. Wisdom is an advantage. And wisdom came to us in flesh and blood in the Lord Jesus Christ. Something I'm always struck by, when we talk about Jesus... Do you realize that Jesus is a real, alive, actual man, present tense, who sees us, who knows knows the the number of hairs on our head, who hears our prayers, and who looks over us? Jesus wants this for us, and he invites us to come and be wise and be filled with his wisdom. His spirit and his spirit-written word invite and teach us how to be wise and how to live well. And when we pray for God to give us wisdom, it totally goes with the grain of exactly what he wants for us. Now, once a month, we devote ourselves to the taking of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is given to God's church for several reasons. And one of the ones that I find most encouraging is that as we look at the bread and as we look at the juice that's right here, it reminds us, like, viscerally, literally, that Jesus is alive and that Jesus has a body and that Jesus' body was broken for us and it's as real and tangible as this bread and his blood was shed for us is as real and tangible as this juice. And as we take in remembrance of what Christ has done for us, we take as a, as a kind of picture of our dependence on Jesus to give us his spirit and his life, his righteousness and his wisdom. Just a couple of moments, I'm going to pray to conclude our sermon time and then we'll transition into our Lord's Supper time. After the, the post-sermon uh, prayer um, I'm going to say a few words to sort of frame up the taking of the elements. Uh, Then after I kind of issue these framing words, I'll invite you to take the elements as you're ready. Uh, You you just come up, you you pray in your seat, you you kind of examine your heart as Paul instructs us in Corinthians. Uh, Then you'll come up and take the elements, uh, Aaron and Zach, two of our pastors will be posted up here. um, and help you get these elements. You'll take it back to your seat and you'll sit and then we'll all take it all at once as a church family. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you as the living, breathing King of kings. Who sees the little chess games that we play nation to nation, and who sees us wringing our hands about the future of this, the future of that. You hold all of it, you laugh at all of it. The the futile efforts of the nations, you hold in derision. And everything operates exactly as you are intending it to operate, and we trust in your sovereignty and your goodness over all things, Lord Jesus. And we, we are confident in your, in your goodness and in your power over these things because precisely because of the cross. Because in the cross, we see the way that you have upended evil and death for your purposes. And we know that you do that in, in our lives individually and in all lives everywhere. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be a people who devote themselves to wisdom. Not wisdom in the abstract as a bullet point document, but wisdom as it is embodied in you, Jesus. Pray that we would devote ourselves to your word so that we can be near to you and in prayer and all these things I listed a moment ago. We pray that your spirit would fill us and teach us and mold us. Pray that you would knit us together as a church family and receive wisdom from one another. I pray as we take these elements tonight that our faith would be strengthened and nourished, And that for those who are in here tonight who have not yet believed on you, Jesus, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open their hearts and allow them to see their need for a um, folly atoning Savior. We love you and we pray this in your name, Jesus.